This went from, um, I really like this guy, to Grandma being like, well, you know, what happens after we die is nothing. Greetings, travelers. Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. If you've been following us on Twitter and Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest, then you will know that we have dived deep to bring this story for you. The story of the Little Mermaid. Aw, yeah. I have to say, this is definitely one of my favorite stories from Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, every little girl has wanted to be a mermaid at some point. I think every little girl, every teenager, every, you know, young adult, every adult at some point has wanted to be a mermaid. If you have read this story yourself, you'll know that Hans Christian Andersen has taken a great care in the details of building this world. He describes the underwater place to be so magical and so enchanting that you just have to be drawn into this wonderful new world. But today we're going to be covering just the overview, remind you what the story looks like. So come swim along with us as we make a splash into this story. So this story was written by Hans Christian Andersen in 1836 and published in his first collection of fairy tales told for children. Truth be told, it should be called fairy tales told for everyone because this is a story that I will probably read over and over again. And I mean, a good story is timeless and just reaches all ages. Let's be real. Definitely. I think this is definitely one of those that you can read no matter what age and still relate to it to some extent. A long time ago, far beyond the enchanted forest, at the bottom of the sea, there lived sea folk. Now, this ain't like no boring sand or rock-covered seafloor that you would see on National Geographic. This was... A whole new world. Oh, no, wait, hold on. That's the wrong Disney movie. <clears throat> this was a different world that was colorful with plants growing like trees with happy little fishies swimming through like birds in the air. At the deepest spot lies the Sea King's Palace with his wise old mother and six beautiful daughters. Talk about a lot of girls in one place. Almost feel sorry for the dude. He's definitely outnumbered when it comes to activities for the weekend. Oh, man, I can only imagine. Does anyone want to play ball? <laughs> Am I remembering incorrectly, or did in the Disney movie, is it seven daughters? Yes! Which is like, why? I must have thought that in this one, it was also seven daughters. But in the Disney movie, I remember it's seven daughters because it's the seven seas. Mm. I think Ariel is the Red Sea, and each sister just represents a different one. This seems to be an interesting change, but it's very specifically six beautiful daughters in this version. Mm -hmm. But being in house with all these girls, it's not as bad as you think. The proud grandma loved the sea princesses, each and every one of them. But she especially loved the youngest one, who was the prettiest, the quietest, and the most thoughtful. The Little Mermaid, if you will. Oh, dang, that's the title of the story. I think we got it. <laughs> That's a wrap. Roll credits. <laughs> and scene. Yeah, and scene. Cut. Thanks for listening. <laughs> In classic teenage fashion, the princess nagged their elders about things they weren't allowed to do. In this case, it was seeing the surface world. The hip grandma told them about all the strangeness of the human world, like ships that floated on the sea, cities that lit up at night, and these totally crazy things called flowers. Then she had to explain the concept of smell so the princess could understand why flowers made that list. Think about that. Underwater, you don't have any sense of smell. See, this is the part of the story where I think one of the main themes or concepts come up, which to me is different perspectives and unknowns. Um, as another Disney princess likes to sing about the unknown, it's kind of everywhere and it's very different for individual people. Because for me, if I was a teenager and my grandma sat me down and was like, listen, there's this entire underwater world and they can do this really weird thing that you can't do and that you can't even begin to imagine, like smelling, or they can taste something differently. I feel like I would be over the moon with ideas and fantasies and longing. And I'd want to go see it because it'd be so close within my reach, but also so far away. Because the world of the land is right there for them, but they can't access it. And I think that's something that's really dangerous for a lot of people is having something so easily accessible, but being denied it. And it makes you kind of want it more. So I can totally see why she wants this so badly, because I would want the same thing, I think, at her age. Agreed. I mean, 
as I said, this is classic teenage fashion of, I can't have it. I want to know everything about it. I want to be there. And I mean, one of the reasons the story is written is because we don't know, or at the time, especially, we did not, didn't know a lot about the ocean floor. So we wonder what was down there. Are there people down there? And people still wonder. Yeah, I mean, even now, I still wonder if Atlantis is real because there's so many myths about it, so many stories about it. And it just seems like there's so much going on in the world that we don't know about that if Mm -hmm. someone came out and said there's life under the sea and, you know, there's mermaids and stuff for real, I'd be willing to believe it if there was enough proof because there's just so much that we can't have access to. And I think for them as well, it's something that they can kind of see. So for them, it's a reality where they can see people, they see the ships, and they can see the land right there. Whereas for us, we don't really have access to that kind of information. It's just like space travel, where it's right there within our reach, within our grasp. We can make theories and, you know, hypothesize what's out there, but we can't touch it and we can't see it and we don't really know anything about it. Whereas for her, it's a concrete thing. There's definitely something there. It's just not for her to enjoy or see. Well, not yet anyways. Yes. As much as they wanted to see it, they can't actually go there until they were 15 years of age. You know, when they can get their surface license. I assume. <laughs> have to pass them tests. Yep. Of course, they were all about one year apart and our youngest one, our little mermaid had to wait while all of her sisters went one by one going to the surface before her as each of them came of age and went to the surface they would see wonders of the human world they would return telling stories of the setting sun the cities of bustling humans and forests with such strange creatures like squirrels aren't they strange (laughs) very strange If you've never seen a squirrel before, I can see how if you saw one, you'd be like, wow, what is that? I have no idea. Finally, it was the youngest's turn. Before she swam to the surface, the grandmother attached eight large oysters to her fin. The little mermaid exclaimed that the pain was just too much. But the grandmother was having none of that today and giving her the old adage, pain is beauty, so suck it up, buttercup. Ain't that a loving grandma? Just clamp on eight oysters to your fin and then tell you, go on. Coming of age can be very painful. There is all of the different interactions that have to happen, all the different social rules that get put into place. It feels like you're entering a whole new world, as you put it earlier. And to do that, but to also enter a literal new world to you is so weird. Now, in a great deal of pain, as the little mermaid swims to the surface, she hears loud noises and sees flashes of bright lights fill the night sky. As it turns out, sailors were setting off some fireworks for the prince's birthday. But not just any prince, a super handsome prince. And our little mermaid becomes head over fin in love with this guy. So she spends her first night on the surface watching him party until a great storm comes and destroys his ship and everyone goes overboard. That's a bummer way to end a party. What an adventurous first night, though. I mean, imagine the first thing you see for the human world is fireworks. I'd be pretty okay with that, I think. I love fireworks. I mean, yeah, that's pretty thrilling. Yeah, I think it's also important to note here that every all the sisters had their own little gardens, and in the Little Mermaid's little garden, she had a statue of a handsome prince. And imagine you have the statue, and you kind of idolize it, you kind of tend to it, and then you come out to the surface, and you see this super handsome guy who happens to be a prince. It's hard not to be like, well, this is fate. This is meant to be. I love this guy. True. And also, she's a teenager, so there's that whole thing going of, this is love, and this is the only love that I'll ever have in forever. You know, the whole dramatic part of it. Would you say she just wants to be part of your world? <laughs> I think so. I mean, she's, she's giving us very much part of your world vibes at, this t- at the time. Up until now, I think we've had an idea of her wanting to see the world for what it is. And now we're kind of getting into, okay, well, there is also this guy and his love at first sight kind of situation happening. So she's kind of caught between two worlds at the moment. 
Well, in this very current moment, actually, the prince is not doing too well. This ship has just <laughs> experienced some technical difficulties, and he does not seem to have auto insurance or ship insurance. <laughs> He skimped out on it. So the little mermaid is like, oh, yay, now I can be with the handsome prince I have been oogling all night. (laughs) But thankfully, she realizes that he's uh, actually drowning. And she quickly reacts, getting him back to the surface so he can breathe again. Bringing the now unconscious prince to shore, she kisses him and leaves him before anyone sees her. Good thing, too, because shortly after, a girl appears who would have seen her. This new girl helps the prince gain consciousness. Now, the little mermaid is feeling totally sad that the guy she never talked to isn't, you know, thanking her or anything. So she does what anyone would do in that situation. She returns home and proceeds to cry about it, throwing herself a big old pity party. Gotta say, this might be the most accurate iteration of teen angst I have ever read. To be very fair to her, I would be so upset if I had one night on Earth and I spent it saving a guy who would never even know that I existed at the end of it. Okay, but she chose to leave. She did, but I mean, how do you explain the situation if he gets up and he's like, oh, who are you? And there's a whole conversation that needs to happen and they don't have time for that kind of conversation. It's a big old can of worms of, hey, I'm a mermaid. So, like, I mean, how else is she supposed to meet him? I mean, dating apps? (laughs) I know there's probably a part of her that's like, well, I can't be seen because I'm a mermaid. But I also read this personally as she's too afraid to actually talk to him at this point. Just that idea of, you know, when you have a crush on someone, but you really actually don't want to approach them. I think she's more in that stage and she just really doesn't have the guts to do it yet well i mean she's never met a human before she has no idea what they even think of mermaids or if they even know about mermaids because she grew up obviously hearing stories from her sisters about their what they've seen up in the world and her grandma telling these stories so her limited knowledge of humans i don't think extends to well what do they know about mermaids do they love mermaids are they able to do that you think that would have come up at some point So I doubt she's ever really considered the fact that humans, like she might actually speak to a human, she might actually see a human. I assume that this whole thing of them going up to the world is very distanced. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that she's actually helped someone would go against the rules. And if he did see her, there's the whole thing of, well, what if he's scared of me? What if he's like, what if he doesn't like me? What if he's disgusted? There's a whole other element of what is he going to think of me? Because I am an other to him. I'm not the same kind of race as him the same kind of person as him I'm not a mortal human and I think now is when you have that coming of age moment you start to see yourself as other people see you and I think she's having that moment where she's being like well how is he going to see me now that I've rescued him it's not going to be about what I've done it's going to be about what I look like and who I am and I feel like a lot of teenagers go through that where they get to a moment where they stop seeing themselves as just part of a group and they see themselves as what they're not part of and that's part of other groups and what other people look like Mm -hmm. i think that's a very very valid point to bring up not just as a teenage girl and not just as a mermaid but just as a reality of living in society there's always going to be others in a society and sometimes you feel like you're the other and it's not always because other people are making you feel like that sometimes it's just how you feel within yourself because of just self-criticism this idea doesn't just apply to fantasy creatures it does really relate to us but in this particular case she does actually have to compete with fantasy and magical factors in her life (laughs) being a teenager is already hard but imagine being a mermaid as well (laughs) oh gosh it sounds troubling and she doesn't have her mom to ask her about this stuff but she does have her grandma so she does go to her grandmother eventually once she finished with her little pity party the little mermaid asks her grandmother if humans and sea folk are alike and if you know they could be together. The grandmother explains that seafolk can live up to 300 years old. However, they lack souls and become seafoam when they die. But humans, they have immortal souls and live on even after death. I mean, yeah, I think we established that when we all saw The Good Place. <laughs> A great show. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend The grandmother explains that the only way to gain an immortal soul is to have a human love you more than anyone else and vow to always be with you. This would extend their immortal soul to their beloved. But 
this would never really happen since fish are ugly. For the record, this podcast does not fish or sea folk shame. You are all beautiful and we support you. We definitely do. I personally do not like fish, but I can respect fish for being who they are and being beautiful in their own way. Yes. So this got very deep. <laughs> this went from, um, I really like this guy to grandma being like, well, you know, what happens after we die is nothing. So you might want to think about the existential dread of your future. <laughs> yeah. What an arbitrary rule for immortality. I mean, how many mortals are just going around finding other kind of fantasy creatures to share their souls with? How does anyone know this, this concept exists without it having happened before? That is a good question. Also, what if someone doesn't actually love you, but they say, you know what? I vowed to always be with you. How do they judge love? Who's judging love? There's so many questions. It's true. There's a lot of inquiries. I would like to know, is the grandmother all knowing? Just She just like was born with that knowledge. Did someone pass it down? There's a lot. There's a lot to wonder about this. This does bring up another premise to our story. Uh, we do have a teenager who's already conflicted about love and being curious about what's in the unknown world and wanting to explore. And now grandma hits us with, listen, after 300 years, you literally become nothing. Not nothing. Seafoam. Ah, uh, yes. You become seafoam, which seafoam, which to me. It's a beautiful color, man. Is akin to being seafoam nothing. Seafoam green. Um, not that I'm shaming any seafoam. But... Actually, I really hate seafoam green. I'm green. I'm so sorry. It's I, really. It's one of those colors that I I look at it and I think of a hospital, and oh. I cannot think of anything but a hospital. It's like the color I think nurses wear, or like I don't know what it is, but I think of like hospitals. I think of like sanitized areas. I think oh. of like an overwhelming pukish green i'm so sorry i'm not trying to see wow. foam green shame um wow. again okay. beautiful respect you <laughs> support you they unless support, you're seafoam they don't green. have souls and you're shaving them <laughs> i i know but listen i can help you not become seafoam because i'll love you forever <laughs> and i'll vow to be with you always so i will share oh. my soul with seafoam mermaids so they don't have to become seafoam green it's, it's complicated see i'm overwhelmed and i'm not even a teenager i am an adult woman who sometimes acts like a teenager even i'm overwhelmed by this knowledge but i think this does set up the premise of if you would like to have a life after your death and not become seafoam green you must find someone to love you and they have to share their soul with you so this does set up another alternative but i think the main thing here is that she's only, what, like, I guess, air quotes, 16, 15. She's not even at the stage no, where no, she should be thinking. Canonically 15. Okay, so she's 15. There's no way she should be thinking about what's happening 300 years down the line. How does she not know this? Like, how is this not ever mentioned? Maybe this is the first time that Grandma's having, like, the whole death conversation with her. Maybe it's never been brought up before because everyone lives to 300 years. And she's only 15, so she's probably never really seen anyone she knows die yet, I guess. I mean, her mom's dead. So wouldn't you want to know what happened to your mom? <laughs> mom is in the good place. She's gone. It's fine. Maybe that's the but story they've been told. Not because, oh my gosh, what if, her, what if they know this because her mom fell in love with a human and, like, went through this process already? And now her mom has an immortal soul, so she's like, gotta follow in mom's footsteps. No seafoam green for me. After a long time of moping about all of this, she finally decides to get some of that agency and goes to see the sea witch for help. Always a smart move to see your local sea witch to solve your big problems. <laughs> Nothing could go wrong. The sea witch explains she can give her the legs she needs to walk on land and be human, but the pain will be excruciating to get them. Not to mention, walking will always feel like stepping on spikes. Also, she will never be able to get her fin back, meaning she will never see her family again. And to top all of this off, she must have the prince fall in love with her and marry her. Otherwise, she will die if he marries another. Now, I know what you're thinking. What a bargain, right? What price could you have on such fine, high treatment? Just, oh, you know, her voice. The Little Mermaid, unable to live with the thought 
of not being with the prince agrees to this. Let's take a moment to think about this. She agrees to go through excruciating pain. I guess pain is beauty. She's like her grandma. <laughs> to get legs and then be in pain to walk. And for like the off chance that this prince might like her enough to share his soul with her. So the way I read this scene personally was not so much that she was doing it because she loved the prince and, you know, it's undying love. I also read it as she also wanted to just explore the world and see what was up there and the land. And so to me, it wasn't just that I have to marry this prince and get him to love me because I love him. It was more so that this is my ticket to being able to live on land or being able to become someone who can have an immortal soul. So I think her her goal, I guess, is the best way to put it, would be different depending on your interpretation of it. It's one of those, I guess, again, coming of age things where you do have to go through pain to evolve or go through your transformation into your final form. I guess to some people, there are things they are willing to put on the line or go through for what they really want or their goals. And there's a lot of self-sacrifice there for, okay, I want this, and I'm willing to put this on the line for it, and I will deal with the consequences of those actions. I'm not necessarily saying she's thought them through, but as part of her transformation from a girl slash mermaid to a human with a soul, it's part of that in-between liminal stage where she has to go through something rough and painful to get to the end that she wants. Uh, I like to think of it more as she did it because she wanted the chance to have a soul and to live on land as well. So I thought I was reading more into it as a perspective thing. You're probably right. On the other hand, I this might be the only time I ever say this. <laughs> I would hope that this is true love type deal. And this is just she knows she loves him and wants to be with him. Because if that's not the case, if her first thing is not that she loves him and wants to be with him, then I... I feel like she's ultimately doomed to fail in this moment. The conditions to get an immortal soul are that they love you above all else. And if you're not going in there with that same mindset, you're kind of corrupting your own reasons. And I don't know. I feel like that kind of is a self-defeating idea. I think the whole story does go between the issues with self-sacrifice and juxtaposes that with self-defeat or self-destruction, where I don't really think she loves this prince. She loves the idea of him. Yeah, I think she likes the idea of him. I think this entire thing was doomed to fail from the beginning because it's not true love. No. And it is a fairy tale. We are supposed to believe in this idea of true love and unconditional love. But the way the spell or the, the way the conditions are, it does call for some kind of unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And it does test the limits that we put on love and how much we will give up for the idea of love. So while she is giving up her family, she's giving up her entire race, what she looks like, her voice, she's putting herself through pain. All of those things do not equate to her loving him, I don't think. I think those are things that she does, and she might do them, one, because she thinks she loves him, or two, because she wants this greater goal of being a person, being immortal, being allowed into the land, the world of land. And she might think, okay, these all go together, and these all make sense together. But what I think is she's doomed from the start. She doesn't have a straightforward, I love him, this is the one for me kind of mentality, because he's the only man she's ever met. Well, not even, just the man she's seen. And she has that statue of a prince, so it's, it's all kind of the same in her mind. But this was definitely one of those things where I'm like, it's doomed to fail, and in any realistic storytelling, it's going to fail, because there's no real love there. There's nothing for us to build on it. She saved him, and that's great, but that's more of a life-for-a-life life kind of trope or system. It's not really unconditional love at that point i also just want to note for the record that in this original story the sea witch explicitly says this is stupid you shouldn't <laughs> do this the sea witch is the feminist hero we need <laughs> she goes out of her way a couple times to be like i could do this for you but you are being ridiculous and this will fail okay i'm not gonna stop you but this is a bad idea <laughs> like the sea witch might have enabled her, but she also was trying to talk a bit of sense into her while this happened. 
yeah, I mean, you can't control what other people do. So the best you can do is warn them and let them deal with the consequence of their own mistakes. But the sea witch was a pretty good guy, considering she's like, hey, listen, I'll do this, but I don't really think you should do this. So you should probably go back yeah. home. I don't think the Little Mermaid is like she's not lacking for female role models in her life. She has her grandma. Yeah. Who, I mean, did put oysters on her, but <laughs> she has her grandma, she has her sisters, and now she has the sea witch. So she has a whole group of women who have probably gone through the same transformation, coming of age thing that she has and dealt with pretty much the same issues. And she's giving all of that up, which I think says a lot about her relationship, I guess, with her family or her relationship and struggle within herself to transform into something different. But for her, transforming into a woman might mean transforming into a mortal. Whereas for her sisters, it probably just meant becoming a grown-up and dealing with the fact that they won't become mortal and they're content with the life they have and the world they have and the people they have around them. So, I mean, interesting choice. Not one I would make. as a, <laughs> I would take the sea, which is advice. But, yeah. you know, we're all our own people. We have to go out there and, you know, give up our voices for men we just met. So let's go do that, I guess. I mean, yeah, who's not been there? <laughs> True to the witch's word, she gives her a potion that gives the little mermaid her legs. Finally, she's able to meet the prince, but without her voice, she is unable to tell him who she is. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Who saw that coming? <laughs> no one. I'm in shock. No. The prince does take a liking to her and takes her in, letting her stay at his castle. She follows him everywhere and... To his credit, he actually turns out to be a pretty good guy. He gives her clothes, he seems to genuinely care about her, and is really well-liked by his subjects. It just gets a little weird that the prince calls her his little foundling, and he also has her sleep outside his room on a velvet cushion. Uh, girl, can you not see the big old red flag here? I mean, I don't think she can, but no. she's never really seen a red flag before because I don't think red travels very far underwater, so. I mean, I guess that's true. It just looks like a water um, flag to her. <laughs> apparently, she really did it because to the little non-mermaid's horror, he has fallen deeply in love with someone else. Specifically, <gasps> the temple girl who found him on the shore after the little mermaid saved him from drowning. This is what we like to call irony. <laughs> but since she is a temple girl, she is dedicated to her faith, and the prince could never be with her. Oh, no. Oh, no. The drama. But to everyone's surprise, it turns out the temple girl was actually a foreign princess learning the virtues of the kingdom. And when the prince discovers this, <laughs> they instantly get married. Yay! That's good turnaround time. <laughs> I'd love to know who their wedding planner was. <laughs> Despite the wedding festivities, our little, not a mermaid, is very sad as she realizes she will die at dawn after the wedding. But before she comes to terms with her foamy death, her sisters appear to her all very bald. They explain to her that they made a deal with their friendly neighborhood sea witch and traded their hair for a way to save their sister. The sisters toss a knife to their youngest sister and tell her if she kills the prince with the knife and splashes the blood on her legs, she can once again become a mermaid. Sneaking into the prince's room, knife in hand, she prepares to kill the love of her life, when suddenly she hears him murmur his love's name while he sleeps. Hearing this, she cuts herself and throws herself overboard as the sun rises on the sea foam. Okay, but was she green sea foam? Ah, they did not say. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I imagine it'd be green. I mean, isn't that where the green sea foam term comes from? Well, for her sake, I hope it wasn't, because uh, that'd be a horrible color to be for the rest of your life. But, well, non-life. She has a lot gone. going on. Yeah, she is. What a what an interesting way to end the story. It's very sad. Yeah, no kidding. Not much is resolved. Yeah. Very tragic. Not where I thought it was going, because I grew up with the Disney version, so I was all here for her and the prince living happily ever after. Yeah. Kind of a bummer after 
Disney version. <laughs> but honestly, I I really enjoy the way this story goes. I mean, I think you and I are both big fans of how strange and random fairy tales and folklore can be. So this just really fits right into all of that. I definitely think so. I think Anderson agrees because one thing he said about the ending that I really thought was interesting and kind of made sense to me towards the end when I was still debating if I liked the ending or not. He mentioned that he thought it was unfair for the mermaid to be empowered by someone else and wanted to give her her agency by having her follow a more natural, almost divine path that she's going to become into sea foam. I can really appreciate the fact that towards the end, even though she's in a very impossible situation between a rock and a hard place, she doesn't make the decision to save herself. She makes a decision to accept her fate, accept the consequences of the actions she chose, and not impose her destiny or her fate onto someone else. I mean, the prince had no idea she existed before she came up to him as a human. He had no idea she was the one who saved him. Mm -hmm. So he is really someone that doesn't hold any blame really here yeah he's not the cause of her pain in any way she did that to herself because she had this idea of him in her head and she kind of romanticized it and even when they were together she i think she pushed this narrative of if i'm in love with him he'll eventually become in love with me and having him marry someone else does throw a wrench in that plan (laughs) but she doesn't take it out on him even though the easiest option would be to just kill him splash the blood on her legs and go on living for the rest of her 300 year life but instead of doing that she just accepts the fact that you know what this was her choice this was her choice she had the agency to do what she wanted and she chose to do this really silly thing but this is what she chose to do and you can't just have agency when it's convenient to you you can't just have a free will when it's convenient to you it's constantly and one negative thing about having your own agency having your own decisions is that sometimes you make the wrong ones Mm -hmm. and she's stuck in a really really hard place because she's stuck between almost two genres of stories one is the Bildens roman which is the growth from youth to adulthood But also she's kind of stuck into this almost forced female marriage plot where she has to marry or find love with the prince. And that's a really hard, that's the rock and hard place. You're trying to grow and you're trying to transition in this really hard spot in your life between being a child and being an adult and dealing with adult situations. But also you have the side story of, well, if he doesn't fall in love with me and we don't get married, which is the universal symbol of love, if you marry someone, she's going to die. Like the stakes are really, really high. And she did that to herself. It really is. But. I'm really glad that at the end, she didn't decide to take it out on someone else, that she just accepted her fate for what it was and dealt Mm -hmm. with it that way. Those are just my thoughts. I think for fairy tales, The Little Mermaid probably ranks pretty high on, like, her level of agency in the story. Mm -hmm. Even though she's making dumb decisions, you can kind of see where she's coming from. And she does make those very clear choices that have big consequences in her life. I also really enjoy that the sisters have come back around. In the original tale, the sisters have given a lot more focus, talking about Mm -hmm. their takes on the world, and they all have the different personalities. But they all love their sisters. They all love each other, and they care for each other. I honestly can't imagine what it would have been like when they realized that their youngest just disappeared one day, and what that must have been through for them to try and figure out what happened to her and how they could bring her back, and then they sacrifice their hair, which... It's probably a much smaller price than, you know, the voice or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But that's still a symbol of beauty. I'm not sure if you agree with that or not. I do. And I think hair is a very clear symbol of femininity as well. Yes, it's a very clear symbol of femininity, very clear symbol of beauty. Mm -hmm. And we see the grandma does put a lot of stock in that. Yeah, we see the grandma puts a lot of stock in beauty and putting yourself through pain for beauty. So it's it's something that means a lot to them. Mm-hmm. Um, hair doesn't always mean the same thing to everybody, but I think hair is one of those intimate things that you spend a long time just taking care of it, grooming it. And to get rid of it, I think, changes how you look, changes your identity in a way. So for them to do that for her is an act mm-hmm. of sacrifice for them. I think we both agree we both really enjoyed the story. 
<laughs> we did, and we I think we enjoyed it for what it was. I do see there is a lot of debate about you know the conventional princess stories, air quotes princess stories, because a lot of people yeah. think that fairy tale princesses don't have agency, they don't really have their own voices, they're kind of stuck in these patriarchal systems where they have to deal with these these different issues based on the society they grow up in. But I think that kind of harms the stories in a way when we don't think about them in terms of what the girls want and what the princesses want. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, they're brought up to think, okay, I have to marry a prince and, you know, have a have babies and have a happy marriage and that's what love is. But she clearly makes the choices on her own. The way I read the story in itself was that she was interested not just in the prince, but also to delve into the world and to delve into this new society and culture and this obsession with her immortal soul as well. It wasn't just about the prince for her. And I think reading stories with a very narrow light can kind of take away some other aspects of it. So I'm really glad that we read this story and talked a bit about the other aspects of her sisters and about the sea foam and about how she wanted this, even though she was warned by the sea witch and she was warned by her sisters and given an option to take out. Um, in the end, I think you're free to make your own choices and you're free to deal with the consequences. And she did it. She did both. And I think that's something admirable about her as a princess, as a character, um, especially as a fairy tale character. All right. We've just been swimming along here talking about this, but I think we're quickly running out of time. So let's quickly go through our five fantastic finds. Number one. So Anderson does kind of pat himself on the back for creating the Little Mermaid story from scratch, but the concept of mermaids is not unique to his story. Many believe the idea of mermaids evolved from the concept of the Grecian sirens, which were initially half-bird women, but were later depicted as half-fish women who sang sailors to their death, as we see in Homer's Odyssey. Now, the first known story or folktale about mermaids comes from Assyria, around 1000 BC, where a goddess, a Targetus, so sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, loved a mortal and unintentionally killed him. She jumped into the river and became a fish out of shame, but the waters did not want to hide her beauty, and so they turned her into a mermaid. That's nice of them. I mean, if you're so beautiful, even the waters like, listen, we can't hide this, we gotta turn you back into something that's a hybrid. Wait, hold on. Is the sea fish shaming? The sea is fish shaming. So they oh don't want her gosh. to be a fish. They want her to be a beautiful woman as well as a fish. So that's where people believe the idea of mermaids originated. Neat. Um, there are mermaids, obviously, or mermaid variants in every culture and every time period. So mermaids are not just an Anderson creation, but the story itself is. Number two. Like all fairy tales, this one has a fair amount of adaptions going for it. But the prominent one, which we talked a bit about earlier, is the Disney adaptation, The Little Mermaid. This variation on The Little Mermaid takes a lot of um, <clears throat> liberties in changing some of the uh, <laughs> plot points, general outcome, general direction. We have our Little Mermaid named Ariel with fantastic red hair and as we mentioned earlier she has six sisters making them seven altogether as opposed to the original six in the anderson's version this is just but one of many changes from the original tale to the movie if you've not watched the movie do yourself a favor and watch that one it's quite enjoyable still i think it holds up the biggest change comes with its ending so spoilers they do change the ending to be a bit happier. They remove the part of the prince seeing another woman and instead sees Ariel instead. So he knows it's her when she starts singing at the end that this is his true love and they live happily ever after together on the surface world. What do you think of this movie? I really liked The Little Mermaid. I thought it was one of those ones where when I was a kid, I could relate to it a lot. I mean, there's the whole issue of her rebelling against her father, her wanting to see more and having all of these musical numbers where she talks about the different items and being curious. And so that kind of drove me when I was a teenager to be like, well, I want to be like this. I want to know what's out there. I want to explore and see. And when you're a teenager, I mean, you obviously feel like people are holding you back. Mm-hmm. And keeping you in a box. As I've grown older, I start to be a little bit more critical of her. I just, you know, she's 16. Daddy, I love him. 
I know it's the whole daddy I love him scenario and we make fun of it but as a teenager it's so real to you and it feels so wrong to make fun of it because when you're in those emotions when you're at that stage in your life it's so real it's so different because you think that it's the one it's the one thing that's you know holding you together yeah your entire identity is based on this one obsession but as an adult I I would be horrified if my 16 year old daughter you know moved to a different country to go be with a guy and change her entire personality you know change the way she dressed those would all be major red flags I mean still a good story still a good fairy tale a little bit concerning because of the ages. Uh, if she was, you know, an adult, I would have no problem with her doing those things. Actually, that's another difference between the original story and this one. They actually age her up by one whole year. So instead <laughs> of the original being 15 and running off to, you know, a foreign world to be with a guy, she's 16 running off to a foreign world trying to be with a guy. I love it. And also, <laughs> the sea witch is made to be the ultimate villain. I mean... I enjoy Ursula. She's so much fun as a villain, but I do miss the just original sea witch who's like, yo, this is dumb. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't. I'm warning you. I'll give you this potion, but please don't make me. Yeah, I definitely like there are so many good things about the Disney version, so many good things about this original version. It's hard to compare them really, though, because the changes they've made are really drastic changes. I feel like the ending of the Disney movie kind of puts Ariel back on the back burner where she's saved by her father and she's saved by the prince. um, And they kind of take down the evil sea witch and they're the ones who are almost the heroes at the end of it. And again, she's just kind of going along with it. Whereas in our original story, she's the one that makes the choice and she's the one that chooses actively to be good and Mm -hmm. to have the moral ground. So I think that little difference is subtle. Uh, Definitely not a good movie for small children to have her turn into seafoam. But there is that element that's taken away because they've changed it so much to make her almost a damsel in distress as opposed to the one with the choices and the one with the agency. So overall, I think we both enjoy that film, and I think it's one of the best adaptations. Even though there's a lot of differences, I think it's still a really fun take on the story. That leads us to number three, which is Anderson's own adaptation of his work. Now, Anderson initially had the mermaid turn into seafoam, but changes it to give her an almost hopeful ending. The working title of The Little Mermaid was initially Daughters of the Air, based on the ending where when the mermaid decides to accept her fate, she is tossed into the sea and becomes a spirit of the air instead, where she meets other spirits who tell her that she's allowed to earn her soul if she does 300 years of good deeds by cooling the earth. Now, there's also something that's added to say... If she encounters bad children, more time is added to her sentence. But if she meets good children, her time is reduced. This is a really weird situation. (laughs) It's something that critics call moral blackmail, where you're trying to set a moral and a story for children to follow. So he's adding this in towards the end, and it seems very out of place here. It almost seems like an afterthought uh, to tell children, like, be good. Otherwise, Little Mermaid's going to be in the air for another 300 years. A fun fact is that the story is written in 1837. So if she's been really good and she's only ever, you know, blown a breeze to good children, she would be free in the year 2137. What? So children be good. She's still stuck? She's still stuck, which is why I'm really glad this ending was not the ending of the story, because she's now stuck in this space forever. Well, what might as well be forever. Yep, it's it's just this limbo of a soul, and I'm so glad that ending's not the ending, because that's really unfair. She was not a real... She made some bad choices, but to be stuck as heir for bad children... Yeah. Until 2137. I mean, that's an inconceivably long amount of time. Yeah. (laughs) Someone needs to bail her out. Gosh. I think she tried. (laughs) Didn't work out for her the first time. Next time she'll become a daughter of the sea foam or something. They keep giving her chances and she doesn't want them anymore. She's going to see the movie of her and be like, yeah, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. We're out. (laughs) All right. Number four. 
Like all fairy tales, this has so many tropes in it. One of them being the idea of unrequented love. Honestly, it's a sad idea. The idea that you love someone, but they just don't love you back and they're with someone else. Like, I don't know. I think that's pretty relatable to a lot of people, but the trope doesn't often get focused on on big movies or big stories because it's kind of by definition probably going to be sad. If the person ends up with someone else at the end, it's not really unrequented love story. If you're, you really love this idea of unrequented love and kind of want to angst out on that idea a bit more, well, there's a couple places you go to. Not a lot of big blockbuster movies focus on it. I mean, as we just discussed, it's kind of a bit of a downer. But if you want a really good versions of it, you could pretty much watch every soap opera ever. <laughs> this is a high angst, high drama trope that you can really get your mileage out of the audience just going oh and but like still cheering for the character but knowing it's gonna fail it's very sad so you know soap operas love it but you can also see this as in a lot of tv shows they'll have it as a story arc covering anything from a couple episodes to whole seasons one example of this is from how i met your mother <laughs> spoilers i guess it's been too long in season four, one of the main arcs that they focus on is that Barney loves Robin, but Robin doesn't love him back, hence unrequented love. But during the season finale, Robin eventually decides that she loves Barney. Now, normally this would break the unrequented love trope, but in classic Barney fashion, he immediately gets over her the moment she says it, and now the roles have been reversed. Robin is in love with Barney, but Barney does not love her back. <laughs> and playing on this trope, they go further, and they go back and forth with one of them going, I don't love you anymore, and the other going, but I love you. And they just really play on that idea of unrequented love. And number five, ending off on something that's going to, you know, strike a chord in the heart of anyone who is a teenager in the 2000s. What, what? We're going to talk a little bit about the mermaid mania. Now, I don't know about any of you, but when I was a teenager, you know, teenager, a young, a preteen, I guess, there was an overwhelming amount of mermaid content from aquamarine to splash to barbie movies like mermaidia i feel like mermaids were everywhere and you were either a mermaid girl or a fairy girl and i was definitely a mermaid girl now i feel like these movies didn't just strike a chord with us because they had some very good looking teenagers in them i think it was also because it was teenagers being forced to make a choice between their own worlds which came with their families and a set of very distinguished rules you had their moms and their dads setting up kind of like a structure for them to follow versus following their hearts and going and joining the human world where they met these human friends and these human boys and there was always this idea of a kiss that would confirm your true love. And, I mean, back then, we all thought that all it took was one kiss. And that was it. That was true love. That was unconditional love. But I feel like movies like Aquamarine and Splash also showed us a different side of this story, which was the family side and the friend side. In a lot of these, you had them making very powerful connections to other women, having very good friendships that developed because of these circumstances. And I think that's another way of showing love and showing unconditional love was seeing the amount of self-sacrifice the friends would make for each other. Um, in a lot of them, you would see the friends giving up something of their own or going to great lengths to protect their mermaid friend and vice versa. So it does touch upon that idea of what is love? What is unconditional love? Can you get an immortal soul through your friendships? And can you get something not just through a boy, but through the connections you make with other women. Uh, those movies do tend to do more of a teenage side, but there is a movie by Studio Ghibli director Miyazaki, which is Ponyo, which does kind of the same thing, but it's a very childlike perspective of it. And it's from kind of the mind of a chaotic toddler. There are many ways to see the story adapted to fit different mindsets, to fit different times and different narratives. And I think some of the great ones are Aquamarine, not just because I was obsessed with it as a teenager, but also things like Ponyo, where you can see it through a completely different mindset of not a love-struck teenager, but of a literal child who goes from being a goldfish to being a person and just kind of the connotations that come with having two different worlds you're part of and trying to adapt yourself and live within this space where you're in neither world, 
but you're in both at the same time. Shout out to the Sirena Legacy series, i.e. of Poseidon book, which was about mermaids. Like the really classic teenager paranormal series. You know how that works. There's yeah. a love triangle. It's cheesy. It's great. By Anna Banks. It was a good read. I've never heard of it. I just wanted to shout that one out. <laughs> it was good, okay? I remember loving it as a teenager. No, I've... And I stand by I, it. I think there was like a lot of books that I read as a teenager or as a preteen that I look back and I'm like, wow, that was a very basic story, but you know what? It appealed to me, so that's fine. Thank you so much for joining us on our reading and interpretation of Anderson's The Little Mermaid. If you want to hear more from us and find out what our next deep dive will be, come join us anytime on Twitter or Instagram at Tales from the Enchanted Forest. Or if you're old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesfromtheenchantedforest at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions, so if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And specifically, if you have any awkward stories of your mermaid obsessions or just anything obsessive about your fairy tale past as a preteen or teenager, feel free to drop us a line so we can all relate together in our cringy awkwardness. And remember, no matter how awkward or cringy those memories might be, you always have a place in the Enchanted Forest. And sometimes, if you stick around long enough, you might hear some bloopers. Us? Make a mistake? <laughs> Never. Do you remember when the goat in videos and music was a thing? The goat scream? Yes! I loved the goat thing. I thought it was so funny. I know a lot of people didn't we like it. Back. We should bring it back. I thought the goats I sounded so much better than some singers, but you know. That's just my opinion. I honestly can't sing the Taylor Swift, I knew you were chill when I walked in without adding it in. Uh, I know. It just works so well. And that's now just like a meme in my head. Like a, now it's I'm not lying like... on the cold, hard ground. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, you know, your, your voice. I was about to say your soul. <laughs> and she doesn't have one oh my god stop soul shaming her oh sorry how far are you in how i met your mother then no i finished it okay good you finished it i I, I binged it did not like the ending i hated the ending i was so mad there is an alt ending they released i saw it yeah that i was so much happier with that ending i was so mad i know we're going to end off talking about our tw- 2000s. What? It's 2000s, right? Not 20. Yes, 2000s. Oh my god, that was a long time ago. I feel old. Oh my gosh, that was 21 years ago. <laughs> oh my god. What? I know, right?